Over the last few years of working in crypto, I've accrued more NFTs and altcoins and random crypto assets than I can count across more chains than I can remember. And it's always been a struggle to find a single crypto wallet where I can track everything I own. That is, until I discovered Zerian. Zerian Wallet is for everything you own on-chain. Yes, that includes all of your assets across more than 14 different networks. Zerian is giving people the chance to be true owners by making it simple to explore, collect, mint, test, and contribute to the new internet. Go to zerion.io slash download today to take ownership over your on-chain assets available on iOS, Android, and desktop. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and today we're speaking with Ashita, head of strategy at Astria, about the current state of crypto infra, why developer tooling is still lagging, and we get to the bottom of what shared sequencers are. After spending a couple of years researching the crypto ecosystem, Ashita started to feel like a bystander and wanted to become more of an active participant in the ecosystem. So she recently joined the team at Astria to help build out their shared sequencer network. Astria allows many rollups to share a single decentralized network of sequencers, which increases censorship resistance and enables faster block confirmations, all while allowing each rollup to maintain their own sovereignty. If all of that sounded way too technical and confusing to you, don't worry, because Ashita does a great job of breaking it all down for us on this episode. We then zoom out a bit and look at the crypto infra space as a whole, and Ashita shares what she believes to be some of the most important pieces in the infra space right now, as well as areas where she hopes to see more development and innovation moving forward. This is a great episode to listen to if you're a blockchain developer or if you're an end user who's wanting to become more knowledgeable about what's going on behind the scenes of some of the on-chain tools that you use on a regular basis. I also want to take this time to remind everyone that we are live streaming all of our podcast recordings this season on pleaser.house. That's P-L-E-A-S-R dot house. And you're all invited to tune in. This is the only time you'll get to hear the podcast episodes raw and unedited and also have a chance to have some of your questions answered live. We've also recently migrated our community over from Discord to Telegram. So to make sure you don't miss out on anything, please go ahead and join our Telegram group at t.me slash rehashweb3. Ashita was nominated by Vajrash Balaji and voted onto the podcast by Vajrash, Tim Black, Triumph, and myself, Diana Chen. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ashita. Hey, Ashita. Welcome to Rehash. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I want to start off with your background a little bit. You used to work at Misari, which is when I met you. And then you sort of recently moved over to the operator side, and now you're working at Astria as the head of strategy. So I, w- I want to just go back all the way, actually, before you were even at Masari, how did you get into crypto in the first place? Yeah, so I would say I'm like a more of a recent entrant in crypto. I joined Masari in 2021, but there was a couple times in my life where I was introduced to crypto, but it never really stuck to me. I was never really interested in it. When I was in college, I joined this math group that was trying to launch their own token. It was just like an all-around very strange experience, and no one really sat there and explained the principles behind why crypto exists. And so it like never really resonated with me. And then fast forward, I moved to SF when I joined tech, like normal tech. And this was around DeFi summer. 
And I've always been like a really online person. So I was always around like tech Twitter. And I ended up on, I think, the Yam Finance Discord. So this is when yield farming was like, this frenzy was like really high and like people were doing kind of insane things. And I was like, okay, am I going to learn about crypto here? And it was honestly terrifying. And I was like, nah, this is, I don't really get it. I'm out. So it wasn't until the end of 2020 when like more consumer projects started to emerge. FT started being interesting that I was like, okay, I kind of get it. I was seeing normal people that were extremely financially driven that were really building stuff online, like artists. And I felt very grassroots and they were actually able to create value on the internet. So seeing that really resonated with me. And I was like, I'm a very online person. This means a lot to me. And from then on, I started being interested in crypto and then I ended up joining Masari. And so from then on, I think I'm like in this for as long as I can. Yeah. Similarly to you, I got in like right after DeFi summer. And I remember trying to learn about farming vegetables and all of this stuff. And I don't come from a math background or a finance background or anything like that. And I was just trying to understand why people were talking about farming vegetables. It was very confusing. (laughs) And I also, (laughs) once the NFT stuff hit, that's what really resonated with me. But Yeah, the yam finance and yield farming and all of that stuff was very confusing and probably more of a turnoff than anything to me in the beginning before I understood what all of that was. Yeah, same. I was like, I don't understand it. You're like thrown into the deep end and there's not really any education around any of the DeFi stuff happening. So yeah, it was a terrifying time. It really was. And the times have changed so much now where there's so many more resources now. But I wonder, is that part of the reason why you decided to join Masari back then is that there were so few resources and you felt like maybe working at a research firm would be a good way to learn about a lot of these things quickly? Yeah. So one of the things I really loved doing early when I joined crypto was writing content online. I was noticing like when I was tweeting or when I would write a piece about crypto, like it resonated with a lot of people. And that was really fulfilling. And I was like, if I join something like Masari, I'm here doing research. I'm able to learn a lot really quickly. And it did help me form opinions around all the different segments of crypto really quickly. So I was talking to a lot of interesting teams during my time there. Being able to see things from that bird's eye view of what's happening in the space is really cool. But then it kind of started to feel like a bystander. You're doing research, you're like writing about things, you're kind of viewing things from afar. And it kind of started to feel like the reason that I joined crypto was to like build things and be around people who are building things firsthand. And I was starting to feel like I wasn't doing that anymore. And so then I, after Masari, I kind of consulted a little bit. We worked with a couple of teams and did content for them. And that's how I met Josh, who the CEO of Astria. And right off the bat, I learned a lot from Josh and team. And a shared sequencer is a very, like, not an intuitive thing. That's like crypto middleware. So being with that team, I was like, wait, this is really exciting. And I'm able to learn a lot really quickly. And they're building the foundation for the future of crypto. And... I also found with Astria that they had built a really exceptional engineering team that was just excited to build and that really resonated with why I was in crypto and what I wanted to do. And so I was like, I do want to be a part of this full time. So Astria, shared sequencers. I know very little about shared sequencers, so I will probably ask a lot of very low level questions about it. But can you help us understand what a shared sequencer is? And you can start wherever you want before we even get to shared sequencers, if there's background that people need to know about rollups or anything like that. But I really want to like get to the bottom of what a shared sequencer is on this episode and help people really understand. 
Yeah. So let's start with Rollup. So a Rollup is a blockchain that takes transactions, compresses them and executes them for an L1. And a separate blockchain doing all this makes it cheaper and faster for the end user. And so over time, sequencers were introduced to Rollups as an improvement to the user experience. The thing that the sequencer does is give the end user a confirmation that their transaction would be included in the L1 quickly. They get that confirmation really quickly, even though the data hasn't already been written to the L1. So that's why sequencer exists. And now people have kind of adopted that as like how a rollup should exist. And a rollup is not the same thing as an L2. It is. It is the same thing. So all L2s are rollups. Yes. So basically, if I'm executing a transaction on Polygon, for example, or on Optimism or any of these L2s, what the sequencer does is it tells Polygon or Optimism or the L2 to execute my transaction. Yeah. So the sequencer orders transactions for the rollup. And when it does that, it gives a user a confirmation that your transaction will be included in the L1 before the L2 is able to write data to the L1. Okay, so it's like a communicator between the L2 mm-hmm. and the L1. Yeah, so it, it quickly tells the user, like, your transaction is included. Without sequencers, this doesn't happen. And so the user doesn't get that confirmation until data is written to the L1, which is a much longer process. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so that's why sequencers exist. So today, major rollups, all the rollups out there that are live may not use a centralized sequencer, which means that the rollup entity itself is running their sequencer. This means that entity has full authority over ordering transactions, like user transactions. This means that they can censor users, they can insert transactions, go hard on arbitrage, and the user doesn't know because it's not transparent what they're doing. And because you have one entity running the sequencer, if the sequencer stops working, what does that happen to the rollup? Because there's no other thing keeping it live. The liveness guarantee is kind of iffy with the one entity running it. So... Then a dis- when you add in a decentralized sequencer, you kind of introduce more entities into that mix. So then the user has higher guarantees that they're not being censored. And there's more guarantee that they're not getting all this arbitrage happening around them. And then also there's a better liveness guarantee. And then this is still like for a single rollup with a decentralized sequencer. And now the shared sequencer just means a lot of rollups can use one sequencer. Okay, um, so... When we're talking about a single sequencer for a mm-hmm. rollup, that can be either centralized or decentralized. Yes. And then when you say liveness, just to back up on that, what do you mean by liveness? That the system is working, basically. This might be just my opinion, but it's the li- like kind of heart of the rollup. So it's a thing that's ordering transactions to be executed. If that thing goes down or it's paused, that means those transactions are not moving along, which means the user's just kind of stuck in this purgatory. Gotcha. Most rollups or L2s that we use, the main ones, Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, do those use centralized sequencers or decentralized sequencers? Currently centralized. Okay. Yeah. And that's because these centralized sequencers were implemented and it kind of worked for these rollups. They make a lot of revenue off of it and there's not been a real reason to decentralize that it does take a lot more work to decentralize. And when you have a decentralized network, inherently it's less efficient because there's more entities a part of it. These networks have made that kind of trade-off. And so that's just been like the status quo. And users haven't demanded that these networks be decentralized. So yeah, that's something that we hope changes with Astrion. 
Okay, because from an end user perspective, they don't really notice when a sequencer is centralized or decentralized, right? Or in what instance would they eventually notice? So they wouldn't really notice because if they're being censored or if they're being front ran, they don't really know. And a lot of this has to be around education, like telling the user, if you're using a centralized network, you're trading off a lot of like fairness for fast confirmation and like the most efficient rollup experience. And that's not to say that like a decentralized sequencer rollup would be dramatically less efficient. There's always going to be that like lag. But yeah. Okay. So then when we're talking about shared sequencers, now what are we talking about? So a shared sequencer now is one sequencer that a lot of rollups can use. And so that means these rollups can share sequencing costs across all of them because they're all on one sequencer. There's a few composability guarantees that come out of this. This is highly debated and people like go in circles about this. So I don't want to speak to it, but there are some composability guarantees that come out of a shared sequencer with multiple rollups. So Azure is building a decentralized shared sequencer. So that kind of mixes all these benefits. You have better aliveness guarantees, censorship resistance. You're saving on costs as a rollup in this shared network. And then you do have some composability guarantees out of that. Does it also make the system more efficient than if a single rollup were to have a decentralized sequencer? No, I don't think so. Because the way that Azure works, Azure is not executing any of the transactions that these rollups put on there. But the thing that it's doing is very scalable. So if a lot of rollups join for sequencing, it doesn't really change the experience much from if there was only one rollup on a shared sequencer. Gotcha. So it doesn't affect efficiency. So there's still kind of that efficiency problem that you were talking about with just a single sequencer being decentralized. But having a shared sequencer does reduce costs, right, is what it sounds like. Gotcha. And then when you talk about the composability guarantee or the composability issue, can you go back to that and expand on that a little bit? Yeah, there's a lot of debate currently in the infrastructure community about what does composability even mean. And so with a shared sequencer, you are able to get atomic inclusion guarantees, which means a user can get the guarantee that if they have a transaction on one rollup and another transaction on another rollup, that both of them get included in a block. But they don't get the guarantee that these two transactions get executed in the order that they want. So there's a lot of debate about if that even is important. What do you even get from them being included? There are some designs around MEV auctions and things that can kind of fix this problem, but it's still very much R&D. So are you talking about if I executed a transaction on Optimism and then I subsequently, within the next minute, I, I executed a transaction on Polygon, the order in which those transactions would actually be executed? So... This is before execution. You're sending your transaction off to these networks. And then the sequencer kind of comes along and orders them into blocks. And so you can get the guarantee that your transactions, both of them from different networks, will be in a single block. But then there's no guarantees on if they get executed in that order. Because rollups execute their own transactions. The sequencer doesn't do that. So why would... People, uh, I guess, in what case would it matter in what order the transactions are executed? It would matter if you're trying to do some like arbitrage. So you're like, this has to go first, this has to go second. Or if you're trying to conduct something on one chain and then 
have something else happen as a result of that execution. Having that is much more important than just having two transactions in a block. So there's a lot of use cases and things that kind of come out of the execution bit that we're not getting. It's also still R&D. So, you know, maybe there's something like, like on the auction side that could fix some of this. You can get creative, but that's deeper. I mean, stuff that I'm not expert okay. on. Can you give like a, a use, like a real use case or a real example just to help people better understand like how this plays out for the end user? So which bit? Like if you have two different transactions on the same block, this order in which they get executed, when that would matter, like what types of transactions are people performing where that would matter? Okay, so like the inclusion part, you can get a guarantee that these two transactions are on the same block. And when this block goes to execution, it's up to the rollups, like how they execute things. So that's why the sequencer can't guarantee that. I, I can't think of a good example outside of like people just like doing arbitrage. Okay, so what are the cons to using a shared sequencer for a rollup, if there are any? So for the user... The user kind of rest assures that you're not being censored. You're having a more fair experience. For a rollup developer, the cons include there, there's a bit of a hit on the u- user experience because you are using a shared network. But then the sequencer is the only thing that makes money for a rollup. It's the biggest revenue generator. And so if you run a rollup with your own sequencer, you're missing out on a lot of revenue because you're not going the centralized route. You're like, don't have that ability to do that arbitrage. You're not sharing costs. There's no other entity sharing in, on the sequencer cost. So as a developer, that's kind of your disadvantage. But at the same time, you're able to just launch a rollup on this framework and just use a sequencer without having to build your own sequencer. And so there's better DevX around that. And so for a user, you kind of rest assured that you're having a more fair experience. Do you think rollups are just waiting for users to, I don't know, complain enough about this centralization or censorship vector before they adopt these shared sequencers or what are they waiting for? Yeah, I think existing rollups, there's probably less incentive to move off of what their users already know because their users are already used to this experience. I think when newer developers enter the space or already existing app teams are trying to build rollups for the first time, they can opt in to use a shared sequencer because they, they can get up and running a little bit faster. And I think that the demand from the user side, a typical rollup user that currently exists is not like complaining about centralized sequencers. Um, and I think a bit of that is like, and there's not a lot of education around what happens because it's not apparent what happens with these rollup sequencers that are centralized. So I think the change would come from the developer side that they choose to use this and I deliver this experience to users where the sequencer lives and the stack of things that touch the user. I, I don't think that the users are going to come first and complain first. It's going to have to be like the builders that want to offer this experience. I speak from experience when I say that launching a DAO is not easy work. I've spent countless hours trying to figure out how to manage a community, get people to vote on proposals, and figure out how to set everything up on chain. Tally does all of that hard work for me while providing a full suite of tools for my community to create drafts, collaborate on proposals, incentivize voting, and most importantly, stay safe and secure on-chain while doing it all. Tally is the home of DAO governance. Launch your DAO with Tally at tally.xyz. Zero 
zooming out from shared sequencers a little bit and zooming out even from middleware, when we're looking at just crypto infrastructure more generally, where do you see the state of crypto infrastructure today? What are the important things we should be paying attention to in infra today? Yeah, I think the state of crypto infrastructure is still pretty poor. People are still running into like very fragmented problems. The major one is you're on one chain going to do something somewhere else is like a series of hoops. Some people are incentivized to jump through these series of hoops to do the thing, but that's a very small subset of people. And broadly, people in crypto won't do that. That just means broadly people in the world are not going to do that. Yeah, it still sucks, right? And I think also on top of that, just like the education around like where a user should go when they're using crypto infrastructure is really confusing. You come on to crypto, you're like, what wallets, like protocol? There's so many options. There's no clear path forward. And so both of those things tied together just mean that we're still stuck. I think in terms of what's interesting, I've, it reminds me of the USB article, the app infrastructure cycle. I feel like last cycle, a lot of when consumer was really big and exciting and getting really funded, we found that there was a lot of holes in experiences. NFTs were big. Consumer use cases were big on Ethereum, and we found out gas fees are way too expensive. Let's move to L2s. And that kind of, I think, started that L2 frenzy. And I feel like we're there right now. Like the base chains are still expensive. These L2s are trying to make that experience better. But then because these L2s are fragmented, it's like users and liquidity still siloed. I think some of the more interesting things is, you know, SwapX is doing some cool stuff around like trying to fix cross-chain bridging. It's cool seeing like ZK projects this time around. They're actually like building things that are meant for adoption, like succinct labs. And where I sit and Astria sits in the Celestia world, Celestia is finally live. And we're excited to see what people end up building on Celestia because you save on gas. You end up saving a lot on DA fees because it's cheap. Let's see what people end up building here in this modular stack. I think that's really exciting. And that's where Astria sits. Where do you see this problem of all of these L2 chains being so fragmented? What do you see as being the solution to that? We've seen products like Decent's the box that enables cross-chain minting. And I think that's a really useful tool and a step in the right direction. But do you see in the future that we're able to interact with any chain interoperably? Like even last night I was on the Unlonely love on leverage <laughs> stream with David yeah. Phelps and I was trying to like you know do the degen thing and buy vibes or whatever and they're on base and so I like ran out of ETH on base and then I was too lazy to go and bridge more ETH over to base so that I could buy more vibes or do more actions or whatever do you see in the future that this problem will cease to exist because of the tools being developed that enable me to for instance, like by using ETH on Optimism or on other chains when I don't have ETH on like the native chain that app is on? Yeah, I think so. I think that just has to, like necessarily so, we're going to have to fix this interface by which people are interacting with the multi-chain world. I genuinely believe after being at Astria and kind of seeing the world from like, I guess, the middleware world of crypto, I think a lot of things just aren't built well because there's not a lot of good developer tooling like to build at that layer. I think that there's a lot of education and out-of-the-box tools to build apps with, to build contracts with. But when it comes to like a layer deeper, it just seems like there's not a lot of 
things that developers can use to build things really fast and experiment and test and put out into the world. And so I think innovation's just been really low on that side. And also the multi-chain, like bridging problem is, it is complex. And I think it's always going to be risky moving capital from one place to another, one domain to another, but that problem can be minimized. It, it, it is not happening fast enough because we keep seeing bridges getting hacked, but I think we just need to look to the Web2 world. There's tools like Retool, Replit, but like have this exist for developers and Web3 that are building at that infrastructure layer so they can get up to speed really quickly. From what I've seen, it just seems like you have to be like a really deep experienced developer when you try to come and build crypto infrastructure because all the open source code that exists, all the tooling that kind of exists is really hard to sift through. Things are not documented well and they're complex to use. We just hit this upper bound of developers in crypto and the ability for them to build quickly. Yeah, I think everyone's in agreement. We need to fix this multi-chain problem. The problem itself won't 100% be fixed because it is complex. But I think we just need to start innovating for developers first and like the deeper level. And do you think the developer tooling is lacking in Web3 because it's more difficult because of all these security issues with swapping money around bridges and things like that? Or do you think it's just that people aren't aware of it enough or don't care enough yet because there isn't that demand from a mainstream consumer audience yet for these developer tools to exist? Like what needs to happen for developer tooling to be better in Web3? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that it's just like there's not a lot of developers in crypto in the first place compared to the world of developers that exist in the real world. And the people that build in the space are just focused on building. No one's dedicated resources to be like, let's just make sure that things are standardized across the industry because things are open source and that's really hard. It seems like people are just like building their own silos and like trying to come across. And it's always kind of hard to do that because everyone's in their own world. They're building their own things and no one's here. And like, let's all just sit together and try to standardize how we build across crypto. And let's try to make it easier for the average developer or junior developer to come into crypto and be able to build at this level, you know, build infrastructure. I think mostly it is also user demand proportional to the number of developers in crypto to the number of developers in the world. The same thing happens with the number of users in crypto compared to the number of internet users. No one's really demanding these things. Developers aren't entering the space. They're just like, they're here. They kind of stay here. People are exiting. People are coming really slowly. And it does just go back up to user demand. It's people aren't using your things, but you're not going to stick around. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I, I will go on the record and say I have been demanding cross-chain functions to be built into pods, which is where we're minting our podcast NFTs now on pods.media. They're on OP stack right now, which is great, but I've been pushing for them to implement Decents the Box so that there can be cross-chain minting for people that aren't using OP stack chains. Because I just think a world of cross-chain interoperability is inevitable if we want any of this to last because the friction of having to bridge from chain to chain a little bit of ETH for gas on every chain is ridiculous. And like, usually if I'm, if I see like an NFT that I want to mint or something on a new chain, I'll usually pass on that probably the first five times I encounter it until I finally am like, okay, fine, let me go and bridge some ETH to this chain so that I can actually participate in this ecosystem. You know, and that's, I mean, I'm like the target audience for collecting 
media NFTs and performing these actions. And that friction is even too high for me to do it on the first go or the second or the third that I just can't even imagine expecting a normal like mainstream user to get over these friction points and actually like engage in the ecosystem. So I think it's inevitable. And I don't know if you've experimented with Decent's The Box, but to me, that seems like a good example of good developer tooling that exists for developers to just take what they've built, this package, implement it into their dApp and enable their users to have cross-stream minting. Yeah, that makes sense. We get a lot of those. You build this cool thing, put it in a box and let other people use it. And not shockingly, people are trying to do that, but it's just like all these boxes are still hard to use. Yeah, for sure. I also wanted to ask you about uh, Celestia and modular blockchains a little bit too. Since you mentioned it earlier, can you talk a little bit more about what modular blockchains are? And when we're categorizing L1s, L2s, where do modular blockchains fit in? Like, where does Celestia fall into all of that? Yeah, so like a traditional L1, like a monolithic blockchain, contains all the functions. The rollup is essentially a modular blockchain because it takes execution and does it separately, and that creates some efficiency. And so what Celestia did by coming into the picture is taking data availability and focusing on only data availability for blockchain. Data availability on Ethereum has traditionally been expensive. So Celestia was like, let me just do this thing and focus on it and put it on a separate blockchain so that it's cheaper and there's higher throughput. So blockchains that end up using me, whatever, it is cheaper and faster. And so the whole thing around modular blockchains is, well, let's take the other things that a blockchain does and keep separating it. Astria is kind of taking that roll-up sequencer and breaking that up into its own function. And so because Astria just focuses on sequencing, there's a level of efficiency that kind of comes through that too. And the other goal of having modular blockchains is to make it easier for developers to have flexibility. So then if they think it makes more sense to use something like Celestia for DA because they're doing something with high transaction volume and it might be too expensive to stay on Ethereum, they go to Celestia. Or if they chose some other DA solution, they can do that. They can use like a different sequencer. So Celestia really started the modular blockchain push and now now we have RAS. So these RAS solutions, so they're roll-up send service where developers can just go on and click a few buttons and pick exactly what their chain looks like and deploy it onto the world. So those things are starting to become easier and more accessible. So more developers can come in and click buttons and get their thing. I think there's still an education barrier around what these blockchains really do. As a developer, you're coming in, you kind of have to know a little bit about what infrastructure does to build in this world. But I do think that module blockchain makes that a little bit easier because you do have the flexibility that you don't with an L1 that's fully monolithic and does all the functions. What's your take on whether we need more blockchains? Because I've seen both sides of this discourse a lot where some people are like, you know, if you're not investing in new blockchains, you're missing out or whatever. And then I've also seen the other side of people trying to build new blockchains and it's really hard and it's really expensive. And we're talking about this interoperability problem that we already face. Do we need more blockchains? At least until we fix some of these problems. What's your take on that? The VC perspective on this is so different than the builder and like operator perspective. Like VC perspective is stop building more chains. Like we like don't know what to find. And so it, and from that perspective, I can kind of see it's what's collecting the most value. Where do I want to put my money? 
From the builder perspective, I think we are going to see more chains. We're going to see more blockchains because it makes sense for apps when they get to a certain point. Like people can come in, build their rollup for the first time and try to get users, try to build an ecosystem around it. But it also makes sense for teams that already have established apps where they're like, wait, this makes sense to be on a blockchain. And then building an L1 is hard. So they just end up choosing like an L2 is sufficient. I think from a builder perspective, I see more teams using rollups. There's uses that come out of a rollup, like ordering transactions in a certain way, the priority. There's use cases there. I don't know if we'll see a million rollups and people on every single one of these million rollups, but I do see more people building these chains. But there will be more rollups than L1s because they're way more complex. And it's so easy to build a rollup today. And it opens the door to more experimentation for developers to see what things can I do on a rollup for my app to make the user experiences better. And I think we'll see that, especially as more developers entering the space. I, I think there's going to be them trying to build rollups, trying to create value around it. That's really cool and exciting from the de- builder perspective, but not so much the VC perspective because they're like obviously thinking about like, how does this collect value? Like, how does it, you end up generating revenue? But I think from an experimentation, building, moving the space forward, we do need more rollups and we'll see what happens though. We never know with crypto. Can you give some examples of the types of things that developers might be wanting to experiment with? Because my understanding is like the reason that you would build your own rollup instead of using an existing one is to have more control over your ecosystem. But in more concrete terms, like what are some of those factors or that developers might be wanting to have more control over or experiment with? Yeah. So if you have your own rollup, that is sovereign, so it lives on its own, is not tied to the protocol rules of L1. The sovereignty piece is really important because then you can build governance around how this rollup is managed. If you want to make certain decisions about your rollup that are at your rollups like protocol layer, you can do that. But if you're like tied to some other rules, you kind of have to go with what's been said and set in stone. And with a rollup, instead of being on another rollup, like an app on another rollup, you have your own. You can build a community around it and governance around it and have your own token. There's a lot of things that come out of that. You have full ability to build the tech for what you want for this rollup, depending on what you're building. If you're building like a social app, maybe that doesn't make sense. But if you're building something more financial, you want to see certain customizations to make this thing more optimized for I know, certain trades, you would want the ability to control that for your rollup. As a creator in a new and innovative space, I'm constantly looking for new ways to build a loyal following and better engage with my supporters on chain. My newest obsession is Quest, a platform that lets Web3 creators and builders launch their projects through a sleek single page that combines an announcement post with a commemorative mint. By minting your project, your community shows their support and gives your project an upvote that propels your project to the top of a list of on-chain recommendations and social platforms. You can also discover new on-chain media, launches, and creative works on Quest and earn rewards for referred mints. Go to Quest.com to discover the latest on-chain projects, or if you're a creator, use Quest for your next launch. When you look ahead to the next cycle, do you think infra is still going to be the most important thing to focus on as we enter into another bull run? Or do you think that the focus 
for the next cycle is going to be shifted more towards consumer as more people are focusing on like mainstream adoption, onboarding the next billion, all of that stuff. I think there's still a lot of work to be done, like getting infrastructure to a better place. But I feel like I'm starting to see more of an, like a move towards consumer again, especially with frames. I feel like frames really reinvigorated a bunch of developers to get excited about building apps again. And so we're, I feel like we're starting to enter the consumer cycle again. Right. And then I do see this time around, it's going to be a little bit more balanced because there's still a lot of people raising money for infrastructure. It's still people are trying to figure out what makes sense, what doesn't, what new things we need to add to this. But it also feels like developers are also excited about building consumer use cases now again with something like Frame. So I feel like it's going to be some sort of balance, but seeing consumer come back is also exciting because then it's like the, this feedback is directly feeding how infrastructure thinks about the future. Yeah, and it's all tied together. But yeah, I think Frames has, I, I've seen a lot of movement in that area. And I think Farcaster generally has just really done so much for like Web3 Social and like that whole space. And the app is actually like well-designed and well-functioning, which is a lot more than I can say for a lot, like vast majority of crypto apps. So that's really cool to see. Do you have any final thoughts for us about shared sequencers, rollups, infra, any of that before we wrap up here? I think more people should experiment with rollups. We've come to a point where anyone can launch one. You and I can go and launch our own rollups and try to like deploy things on it. We've gone to that point. So I think it, it's, it'd be really cool to see more like normal people like trying to go out, build things, contribute to the crypto space. It's still not perfect experiences, but we're trying to get there. What's an example of something like if I were to go out and build or if you were to go out and build your own rollup, the Ashita rollup, what would you build on it or how would you design it? What would you do with it? What would you experiment with on it? Yeah, I'd probably deploy like Uniswap or like a couple contracts like Uniswap on there and try to get that working and trying to get people to use it. Very experimental and not useful to like most people, but I think it's still fun to kind of see what does it mean to even have this like thing where you're like absolute yeah of course these experimental hello world rollups don't get a lot of users but i think it's kind of cool if you're like building a brand or an app to try to see well, what can i do with my community on here and how would people go to deploy a rollup there's a few ras options out there like caldera conduit you can also go through astria's docs and there's deploy like very like straight we try to make our docs like really straightforward click on this tab that says deploy rollup you copy paste a bunch of stuff and get started it's like a terminal based thing and then you get your like block explorer faucet and you can start there. It's super cool. I kind of want to experiment with that. I don't know what yeah. I would, you know, I'd have to think more about how I'd want to design that and what I would want to do with exactly. it. Exactly. That's like, you don't have a whole thing where people are like, build and they will not come. That's so true. Even though this is like such a cool experience, you always have to tell people what they can do with your thing. I think it, it still just sounds like a, an incredible thing, you know, for like non-technical people that I can build my own blockchain. If you tell most people that, they're like, what? That's crazy. I can? Like, what does that even mean? Come so far. Yeah. Yeah, we really have. Well, I'm going to have to check that out. Last question, Ashita, is one we ask every guest on this season of the podcast. It's a two-part question. The first is, do you think that Bitcoin and or Ethereum will reach an all-time high in 2024? That's a good question. I feel like yes. What do you think that all-time high price is going to be? 
I think for Bitcoin, like the previous one was like what, like 69,000 or something. Yeah, of course it would be. I think so with the halving coming up and there's been a lot more like institutions purchasing a bunch of Bitcoin. There's always like speculation around that. So I feel like very conservatively, like maybe like 75K, we get to like 75K this year. And then Ethereum, maybe like 6K, like like following suit. Wow. That doesn't feel dramatic. Is that bullish? I feel like that's conservative. But I feel like the market isn't like dramatic enough to like, you know. I have no idea, personally. I mean, I've had guests say both things on the podcast. Some have said, yes, we're going to hit all-time high this year. Others have said, no, like probably won't happen this year, but maybe next year is going to be the big year. So I don't know, but I think we'll get there sometime in the next year to year and a half. Or so. Yeah, I feel like the it has been so speculative, like the broadly crypto this these past two months of 2024. I feel like we're going to hit another one. I'll turn high. <laughs> I, I can definitely see it. Yeah, I can definitely see it. And I hope you're right. I'm bullish on that prediction. Tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you personally. And then also tell people where I think they can go to check out more about Astria, learn more about shared sequencers, maybe launch their own roll up. Anything else you'd like to plug? So Twitter, I'm always online. So at Ishida on Twitter and Astria.org the blog our blog i think has a lot of good info and then docs awesome cool well thank you so much ashita for taking the time thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll be back again next week with another episode of rehash thank you for tuning into this episode of rehash rehash is hosted produced and edited by me diana chen and sponsored by zarian tally and quest Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. Collectors will also be able to tune into our recordings live at pleaser.house and hear our episodes early and unedited. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at rehashweb3 or on Warpcast or Lens at rehash. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 